Reading today is from Psalm 122. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There, thrones of judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls, and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be with you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. The word of the Lord. Right, if you would have a seat this morning, and let me uh, pray. Join with me in prayer that God would uh, really transform our hearts by his word this morning. God and Father, you have spoken to us. You've not left uh, silence between us and you. You have uh, uh, spoken, uh, spoken clearly. Uh, Lord, um, when we come across psalms like this, uh, we want to know what it is that you uh, have for us this morning. And so we ask that you would transform our hearts. Give us clarity in the ways that you are forming us, uh, Lord, and uh, give us an everlasting and clarion vision of the gospel through your word this morning. Uh, we love you, and we pray all of this in Jesus Christ's mighty name. Amen. Well, if you would uh, stay in Psalm 122, as uh, per our normal arrangement, we're going to be there. We're going to be there for most of the morning, and so uh, don't close that Bible. But what I did want to do this morning, there are a uh, few privileges as a pastor that I normally just like take advantage of, uh, but having a captive audience on the day of my wife's birth is one that I'm going to go ahead and take advantage of. It is my wife's birthday, and I'm going to celebrate her. I hope that you would too. Uh, say happy birthday to her uh, today. She's amazing. Uh, it is the greatest gift of my life. Uh, greatest earthly one, anyway, that, uh, uh, that we were together. Fifteen years we're together, and I'm just so honored by that. But it almost didn't happen. I don't know if, uh, if you know this, if you've ever heard uh, this uh, before, but uh, she almost broke up with me. This will be uh, news to my kids, uh, which would have, that would have been terrible for her, uh, but she almost broke up with me. We were high school sweethearts, the very end of my high school, uh, can we say career? It wasn't a career, but uh, it, was, uh, it was my high school time, we'll say that. Um, and so we started to date, and we were about three years into college. I was starting to think about uh, asking her to marry me, and she was thinking about breaking up with me. Um, now, there is a specific reason. I asked Sawyer if it was okay if I shared this story, and she goes, as long as you tell them the reason why. And I said, well, the, that's the reason why I'm going to tell them. And the reason uh, will probably be a little bit surprising to you. It was actually worship. Worship was the reason why my uh, now wife almost uh, broke up with me. We, uh, we had been in the same church for uh, years and years, and my worship had really become a problem. Um, I believed in Jesus. I loved him very much. I was employed at the church that we were at. Uh, she was too. I was serving fifth and sixth grade uh, kiddos in our Life Stage 1 ministry, and uh, I had gotten into this really bad habit of uh, staying up with a group of friends that I lived with in the church house right across from the church, and we would uh, walk down almost every Saturday night to a pub, uh, get drinks. It wasn't raucous. It wasn't crazy, but we would stay out uh, for a really, really long time. And then I would go uh, to sleep for about 
two or three hours, and I would go to prayer the next morning with all of the other people that were kind of in that life stage one ministry. Not a healthy rhythm. I'm just going to say that out loud. So we were in life stage one, and I would miss the contemporary service at the church that we were a part of, which really only meant that I could go to a traditional service or sleep or go to a five o'clock service, which I inevitably slept through, which is even more terrible, right? So uh, my uh, girlfriend at the time, I was looking at this pattern in my heart and she made a judgment call. She said that, uh, that hey, regardless of your reasons and saying that maybe uh, the worship really wasn't uh, deep enough or that I wasn't growing through that worship uh, or you know, was just busy during the services that I would normally go to, primarily with sleep, um, that that was uh, that that was a problem. It was a problem in my heart. The truth was not any of those things. The truth was that I was not valuing or understanding worship as a priority in my life. I, like many Christians, fell for the uh, lie that worship is primarily something that is individual, that can happen at just any time in life, and that corporate worship was not really all that valuable. That's not where it was at. Like, I could worship anywhere, so why did I need Sundays? Now, this is probably something akin to uh, things that you've heard, things that you've thought, things that you've experienced, and what I want to tell you this morning is that that is a lie, and it almost kept my wife and I from getting together. So, uh, take those things, put it in your pocket. Uh, We're going to be talking about worship, the importance of it. But without being able to really uh, know the importance or value of it, you've got to start asking some questions. What is worship good for? What is its value? What is its right priority? Sawyer knew, and I didn't, that worship, corporate worship, really forms who you are. It transforms you. And so that's what we're going to be discussing this morning. We're going to be answering the question, what happens within the walls of worship? What happens within the walls of worship? And we're going to discover three things that happen within the walls of worship. We're going to discover that there is gladness there that there is security there, and that there is peace within the walls of worship. Specifically, we're going to learn that there is gladness in communal worship, that there is security in the city, and that there is peace through prayer. That's kind of like the trajectory that we're taking this morning. But just by way of like kind of understanding, especially if this is your first time, like how we're even getting to this point, how we're coming to Psalm 122 and trying to focus on this truth of what happens within the walls of worship, you've got to know that we've been in Psalm 120 and Psalm 121. Now we found ourselves in 122. These are all parts of a Psalms of Ascent. You'll look at the note very top. This is a Psalm from David where it is a part of the Psalms of Ascent. And what we found is, is that on this journey to Jerusalem, this traveling worshiper going up to Jerusalem, that he has left his dwelling among deceivers and that the Lord has kept him up on the road towards worship. But then we find, look at verse 2, that his feet have been standing within the gates of Jerusalem. Verse 2, oh, our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. So, so this uh, worshiper has arrived within the gates of Jerusalem. So he's, he's uh, gone out from the slander of sinners. He's uh, traversed this dangerous road of travel, and all of that is behind him. And now he is in the city of worship. He's there. He's come. He's arrived there. 
And I want you to imagine yourself in this place. You've been living in exile or you've been living in another city, another place, another culture that does not value the things that you value. Now, for a lot of us, we don't have to imagine very, very hard, but I want you to think if I had been a Jew at this time and my identity had been in a a nation, it had been in a people, it had been in Israel, and I had all of these customs, I had certain foods that I ate and was not allowed to eat. I had these uh, things that I recited and that I was taught from the time that I was very little. You grew up and you knew these people that were a part of your synagogue, and you went there and you knew the people. You were a part of a people. And all of them talked glowingly about the city of Jerusalem, and your heart just longed to be in that place, not for the sake of comfort, but the sake of being a part and belonging to God's people. Imagine that you've been living in this culture with different values and maybe even hostility, and then you have arrived within the city of worship. Now you are with your people, you're speaking your language, you're eating the same food, and you're worshiping the same God. I want you to imagine what you are likely to feel in that set of circumstances. What would you be feeling? What are your fellow travelers and friends and family going to say to you? And David gives us a hint at this. He talks about the gladness that we find in community. Verse 1, he said, I was glad now, now, I want to stop there. That word seems kind of minuscule. It seems tiny. It seems like condensed. It seems like something that you'd find on trash bags, right? It's just glad. No, no, no. This was a deep and abiding sense of joy. I was glad. I was glad when what happened? When they said to me, let us go up to the house of the Lord. The psalmist is literally waxing poetic. He's, he's beginning elegant, uh, eloquent. He's actually like uh, feeling all of these things and he's starting to write them down. My heart got glad. When did it get glad? When those other people said to me, let us go together up to the place of worship. He's probably remembering a specific time and his specific joy when a specific invitation was offered to him to go up to the temple. Now here's the, here's the hard part. This is David. Okay, David had not seen the temple yet. The temple was not yet built. So this is, this is something that's very interesting that's happening. The spirit is uh, coming into David, and he is by faith talking about not just the city in general or a place where generally worship was done, but he was looking forward to what God was doing, what he was going to accomplish. That point is going to be very important here in a moment when we start talking about how we look towards the place of worship of final worship, of eternal worship. So I just want to make that point. The temple, as we've said, uh, became the place, the center of worship in Jerusalem, and he's glad to go up there and worship. The temple would have been beautiful. A lot of times, especially in a building like this, we kind of go, ah, what's the point? You know, what, what, the people of God can just gather anywhere. They can go and they can worship in any kind of place, but for centuries, for millennia, God has actually asked and called people to create things, to cultivate things, to build things of destitution, of brokenness? No, of course not, of beauty. Actually, beauty is something that our artists will constantly tell us is a good thing. It is something that can actually make our hearts, what? Glad. Art is good. 
Beauty is good. The temple was beautiful, and it would have been exciting for people to sing songs and to pray prayers and to see sacrifices and make sacrifices offered there at the temple. But there's a reason specifically why there was a lot of gladness, and it's because that's where God's presence was. God was present in the worship of his people. The temple was not just beautiful. It wasn't just where you sung songs or prayers. It's where you uh, communed with God amongst his people. Culturally, Jews would have had a lot of pride in this temple. It would have been a reminder of the favor that they had found, the grace that they had found from God. God picked a people from obscurity made a nation out of them, called them to a place, called them to worship, called them to build a city, to build a culture, to build a place where they could worship and eventually build a temple. They would have had a lot of pride in that. They would have expressed a lot of gratitude. So so what we see here is that uh, this isn't something where David's just talking about himself. He's saying, I was glad, of course, but when they invited me into worship. It said, let us go up to worship. What we find is, is that worship and gladness actually happens in community. This isn't an individual thing. We tend to think of worship as something that is individually happening to us or happening in us and that we are giving it directly to God. But David says, I was glad when they, when they invited me into worship. His brothers and sisters are saying, come and worship with us. There is community in worship and there is gladness that we find there. The psalmist is filled with joy at the invitation to go up, to go worship, to do it together, and to do it in the house of the Lord. If we need to see this even more bluntly put there in verse 4, it says that the tribes go up. That the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks. So what's happening here? There are actually uh, decrees that have gone out for the Israelites that say, you go to worship. You need it. Not because God needs our worship, but because you do. Your heart does. The people do together. So he calls us into that beautiful worship together. And so not every tribe we find here is bad. You hear a lot about tribalism these days. Now, there's a lot of really negative, evil, ugly things about the ways that people divide themselves into tribes and then war with one another. But what we find here is is that God does not hate every tribe, that there are actually these tribes of Israel that are actually commanded to go up and worship, and they're commanded to do it with just anybody, pull in anybody, no, together. They're to do it together. So when we gather together in a place like this today, we're actually exhibiting some level of just obedience to gather together as a group of people who believes commonly in a common Savior that saved all of us together, and we get to worship together. These tribes, they go up, they obey. The fact that the tribes of the Lord have these decrees to go up and actually give thanks should tell us something about what we are to do also. But there is a problem. There's a problem with this whole thing. When we talk about the gladness that we have in community and in worship, what we need to understand is that it is not always something that we are glad to do. Worship is not something, if we can just say it bluntly, that we are glad to do. 
or that we uh, are glad always to identify with those other people that are worshiping alongside of us. I want, though, to bring this into the gospel, to actually take a magnifying lens of the gospel and show you how this wasn't just true uh, back at that time, not just true for us today, but that it was actually true for Jesus. If you would, turn with me over to John chapter 2. John chapter 2, verse 13, uh, tells us a very familiar story. I'm going to make several very brief points about this, but what I want for us to get out of it is that it was not always true for Jesus that there was gladness in community. When he went up to Jerusalem, was he glad? The Passover of the Jews was at hand. So what did they do? They go up to Jerusalem. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. That's interesting. Jesus did the exact thing that we're reading through these Psalms of Ascent that, they, uh, that the Jews would have been doing. And here we find that Jesus is doing it. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Now I want this next sentence to illuminate something about our Savior that we don't commonly think. We tend to think of Jesus as a Zen master, easygoing, regular old chum. We tend to think of him that way. Listen to this. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and turned over their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So I want to make a couple of quick points here. First of all, Son of man, always an easygoing, loving kind of guy. No, he made a whip. Like, this isn't something like he just had a whip on him or that he like grabbed a whip from the money changers. He thought about it. He thought about it long enough to make a whip. So if that doesn't challenge your presuppositions of who our Savior is, I don't know what else will. But what we find is that Jesus goes up to Jerusalem. He goes into his father's house, a place of thanksgiving and worship and prayer. And what does he find? He finds deceit, thievery, deception happening in his father's house. And he makes cords together into a whip and he drives people out. When he went to the house of the Lord, he did not, he was not glad in his heart. He was angry. Here's what I think that that means for us. It means that when we go up into places of worship, when we go to worship Jesus, King Jesus, there ought to be not just pure gladness. There ought to be something inside of us that says, is there something that has been adulterated here about our worship? Is there poor doctrine? Are there people who are taking advantage of God's people? Are the uh, priests and the scribes and the rulers and authorities, are they using the authority, the responsibility that they have been given to actually create a place of worship or a place of taking advantage of God's people? You guys, if y'all ever come into this room and we have the modern day equivalent of some uh, pigeon selling, money changing, lying, deceptive uh, orthodoxy or uh, doctrine, somebody start making whips, please. Drive the evildoers out of this place. Why? Because worship actually really matters. 
And you cannot have gladness, you cannot have joy in your heart unless we are worshiping the one true God rather than creating a place that's about ourselves. So that's the problem. But this glad and worshipful community has gathered in the city of Jerusalem here in Psalm 122. And over and over again, the psalmist repeats the name of the city, Jerusalem. And it turns into this theme because we find that when we go up to worship, that it is not just gladness and community, but we find security in the city. Now, here's what I mean by that. Here's what I mean by that theme. Verse 3 says this, Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together. The city of Jerusalem is bound firmly together. It's a secure place. Now, you get the idea that this could be metaphorical. It could be literal. Is it talking about uh, the city as a physical place, or is it talking about the people as a firmly built city? Here's what I'll tell you. I think it's actually both. Verse 6 says this. It says, may they be secure who love you. Is it talking about a city? Is it talking about like the buildings of the city being bound together in love tightly? No, no, no. It's talking about a people. It says, may they be secure who love you. And and what I want to point out is, is that you could read this, and because it starts with the word may, you might be tempted to think that it's a question. May, May you create security for those who love you. No, it's not that. He's actually stating it. He's putting an exclamation mark at the end of it. The people who love you are secure. This security in the city is a people who is secured by the love that they have for God the Father and the love that he gives them. It's a people. First, God's people are secure if they love, if they treasure, if they worship The the, the word worship actually literally has to do with ascribing value to something. When we say, God, you are worthy, we are worshiping because we are ascribing worship to our Lord. And when they do that, they find that they are bound tightly together. That's why at City Church we're uh, pursuing this revival of joyful worship because I believe that if we are worshiping together, we will be bound together. If we're all going in different directions, if we're believing different things, if we're saying different things, if we're worshiping our own various idols, we have nothing that binds us together, certainly doesn't firmly bind us together. The city church cannot be a secure city unless we are worshiping. And in that love, in that worship, being bound together. So first, we are a people Verse 1 says this, our feet are standing within your gates. There's this repetition of the word within. In verse 7, we say that we are uh, within the walls. We are within your towers. What we find is, is that it's not only a people. We find that it's a city. What's found within the walls of this worshipful city, we find that it is security. Why? Because the gates that we are standing in, they guard. Because the walls that we have surrounding us, that we are within, keep us safe. Because the towers will keep watch. What is found within the walls of a worshipful city? Gates that guard, towers that watch, walls that protect. We will find a secure place for worship. 
The city of Jerusalem was supposed to be a safe place for God's people, a safe place for worship, even in its name, saying that it is going to be a place that teaches us something about security. And here's what I want for us. This is a little amorphic, so I want you to follow me here. I want for us to notice that there is no assumption that worship is automatically secure. It is actually made secure by these walls. So, so here's what I mean by that. I mean that the walls didn't just appear out of nowhere. Somebody didn't start worshiping and then the walls and the towers and the gates just appeared. Somebody had to do it. The people had to do it. A person with authority and responsibility had to do it. Verse 5 There, thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. What we find is, is that for there to be security, there has to be authority. Now, here as as Americans today, especially as Texans, we have to come to terms with the fact that there is such thing as good authority. The, The authority there in Jerusalem would have used the authority to build a temple, to build walls, to build towers, to build gates. Why? so that there might be security. It is not a negative, it is not a bad thing to pray for security. In, in an age where we see uh, people go into synagogues, into churches, and uh, bring guns or things that are violent and bring murderous threats to people, it's not a bad thing for us to build safety, for us to have safety teams, for us to ask God to keep us safe. Now, there is something where we can idolize it, We can think that we are due security, that we uh, earned it, that simply by virtue of where we live in the world or how much money we make, that we have the right to security. I don't believe that that's true, but I do believe that we can actually use responsible authority to build places of safety. Safety just for any old reason? No, no, no. For worship. For worship. We can build secure places for worship. The safety and security of the city are made secure by these thrones of authority. David used his responsibility to build a place of safety. The thrones of the judges. I think that it's talking about something a little different here, but there are thrones of judgment that are set there. There were judges that were actually in Jerusalem bringing judgment. They would have used their authority. Why? How? To build places of security. When God's people are obedient and worshipful, then they knew God's favor and his protection. But here's the problem. Just like the first one, there is a bit of a problem because they weren't always secure. In fact, today, modern-day Jerusalem is not the safest place you can find on earth, right? It is not in the safest community on earth. So how is it that we can say these things? How is it that David, even at that time, when people did breathe murderous threats against Israel, God's people, how is it that we can say this? Well, it's, it's something that we have to come to terms with in the gospel as well. Tall walls, thrones of authority don't make a city secure. Jesus goes up to uh, Jerusalem. And he finds there this people shouting Hosanna. And when he goes out to the garden, he's arrested, 
He's lied about. He's pulled back into the city. And in Luke chapter 22, there's this really, it's like three verses. It's very brief. But while he's awaiting charges from the chief uh, priests and scribes that are there when he's awaiting these false mock trials, there are these people that blindfold him, that beat him, that mock him, saying, if you're a prophet, I'm going to hit you in the mouth and you tell me who hit you. If you know everything, you know who it was that hit you, of course. What we find is, is that Jesus went up to the city that was supposed to be safe and secure, and he found anything except for safety and security. So, so the safety and security of the city has a problem. Because you can build walls, you can build towers, you can have gates, But if there is not security inside the city, if there is not worship of the Savior inside of the city, it is not a safe place. There may be physical safety from uh, armies that are coming, but if there is no safety for the Son of Man, there is no safety for any of us, and it's a real problem. So what we find there is, is that they did seek access to this security primarily through building of walls, but not building of conscience, sensitivity to the Spirit, knowing the time of Jesus' coming. They did not build that security in. So what we find is, is this group of people seeks access to security primarily through maybe military might or police or infrastructure or taxes, but what they should have done was find peace through prayer. Our final point, we're going to spend the rest of our time right here. Verse 6 says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Peace be within your walls. That was something that they would have said over Jerusalem. Not just on their way up to Jerusalem, but once they were in the city to protect the worship that was there, they would have prayed blessing on the city. Peace be within your walls. Not just gladness in community, not just security within the city, but peace by praying to God and simply asking him for it. And what for, I want for us to understand is two applications from this. I want for us to understand that we must pray for the blessings of peace. Verse 8 says this, For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. David is thinking about his brothers and his companions, and he's just praying peace over them. What a good model for this. It means that you can pray for God to bring peace on a city. You can pray for the sake of your brothers and sisters to receive peace, to experience peace. Last week, we studied the God who keeps. In our benediction, the one that uh, you famously kind of heard, uh, the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you what? give you peace. If you want to place the name of the Lord on your children, pray for their peace. If you want to place uh, the name of the Lord on city church, pray for peace. If you want to place the name of the Lord on the city, pray for peace. If you want to pray for our nation, don't just pray for our troops, pray for peace. If you want to pray for this world to experience peace, bless it, keep it, peace be upon it. That's what we want to pray But here we see that he's praying specifically for his brothers and his companions. So I want to ask you this morning, do you pray for peace in the lives of the men and women and children that are sitting around you this morning? People desire peace. They need peace. Are you praying it over them? 
I just want to invite you, remind you, pray for peace. Not just in the Middle East, pray for the people that you know. But then it says something specific in verse 9. It says, do good for the sake of peace. It says this, for the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. The prophet Jeremiah uh, is uh, talking to the exiled Jews in Babylon, and uh, he, he says something that, uh, especially in our circles, I think you probably heard before. He said, uh, it, it says, work for the good of the city. Work for the good of the city. The city church even used to have a nonprofit that was attached to it called uh, For the Good of Fort Worth. And the whole premise was is that we wanted to work for the good of the city. And here's the thing. I think that that's right. I think it's good. I think to work for the good of the city that you dwell in does actually usher, it reveals the peace of the kingdom of Christ. But here's the other part of it that we don't often remember. It says, work for the good of the city. It says, uh, take wives, give your uh, children to one another, uh, start farms, build homes. You're going to be here a little while. That's what, that's what Jeremiah is saying. But he tells them the reason why he's doing it. A lot of times people just stop at the good for the city. But what Jeremiah says, inspired by God, is that because in its welfare, you will find your welfare. You're like, well, that's selfish. It's not. God is preserving a people whom he loves. And what he says is, do you want to experience peace? Pray for peace. Work for peace. Do good for this city so that you might live in peace with all peoples. Does that sound familiar to you? It's a commandment of Christ. Let us do that. Let us pray for peace. We understand something in this. We understand that if we work for an expansion of the peace of God's kingdom in your city, you will find peace and you will thrive. We actually understand something of the purpose of peace. Here in this verse, it says that it is for the sake of the house of the Lord our God. Peace be upon you. Why? The purpose is worship. If you want peace and security for your children so that they can just not ever face adversity, Man, I think that they'll grow up weak and lazy. If they never face any adversity at all, they'll be uh, very poor Christians. But if you pray for peace so that they might be good worshipers of a mighty God, you have secured something in their hearts for forever. You have created peace in their hearts for forever. The purpose of peace is for the sake of the house of the Lord. Peace is for worship. But even here, we have another problem. We don't know the full purpose of peace. We don't really understand. uh, These people that uh, David was writing to, especially at the time, did not understand the things that make for peace. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus is journeying up to Jerusalem, and when he gets within eyeshot of the city, he stands over the city, he looks at it, he sees Jerusalem, he sees the walls, he sees the gates, he sees the tower, he sees the people. Jesus sees the place of worship, and what does he do? Is he glad? Does he rejoice in the security and the peace that is there? He doesn't. He weeps over the city. He's pricked in his heart. He bleeds over the city, and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, would that you, even you, knew this day the things that make for peace. We mentioned this a few weeks ago. 
What is the thing that makes for peace? What is it that Jesus says makes for peace? On this journey to Jerusalem, on your journey up to worship, what is it that makes for peace? Jesus tells us in that passage, what does he say? He says, you did not know the time of your visitation. Do you want peace? You must know the time of our visitation. Do you want to know and experience security? You must know the time of our visitation, the visitation of our Lord. Do you want to be glad in your worship? You must know the things that make for peace, the time of our visitation in the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. That's what we've got to know. Do you know it? If you want peace, if you want security, if you want gladness, you must know the person of Jesus. So how do we obtain this gladness, this security, this peace within the walls of worship? It's the gospel. The gospel is what teaches us these things. John 2, verse 17, we read it earlier. It says, the zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus is saying in John chapter 2 that uh, he goes up and he runs everybody out of the temple and he says, uh, uh, he says you got to get out of here. My father's house is not a place. It's not a den for robbers. And then the disciples remembered the verse that Jesus had presumably taught them that the zeal of the house of God would consume him. Do you want to be Cons uh, like just consumed with zeal, Jesus is zealous for your worship. I'm going to finish reading this story of Jesus cleansing the temple. It says, the zeal of your house will consume me. So the Jews, all of these people that were, I mean, like bleeding, were really confused. This uh, man had come in, claimed to be a prophet. He'd turned over their tables. Their uh, money was mixed in with other people's money. Their uh, sheep and uh, cows and these sorts of things had been run out of the temple. They had just lost everything. They were probably pretty angry. And they said, what gives you the authority to do this? What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will rise it up. Jesus is promising that if the temple is destroyed, he will raise it in three days. And the Jews then said to him, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Man, I mean, just that's the crucible of the gospel. If you want to look, if you want to peer in, if you want to know the substance of it, you have to know this what is your sign? Destroy the temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. The temple is not the physical temple. The walls are not the physical walls. The tower is not the tower. Understand that all of this happens to point us towards worship of Jesus. Why? Because it was his body that was destroyed. And then three days, it was he that physically resurrected. Worship in the temple is no longer our source of gladness, but our source of gladness is in the resurrected temple of Jesus. So this morning, when I ask you, what's within the walls of worship? I want you to say gladness. 
I want you to say joy as we march towards Jerusalem, as we march towards this state of being new Jerusalem. I want for us to understand together that there ought to be joy in worship. Why are we pursuing a revival of joyful worship? Because we must. Jesus is the one that brings gladness to us. When we praise the resurrected temple of Jesus, we are glad. Secondly, these tall walls, these watchful towers, these guarded gates did not keep our Savior safe, so they were torn down. I don't understand, and this will get me in a lot of trouble with some of the very dispensational types. I do not understand the people that have like the twinkle in their eye when they talk about Jerusalem. If you want to go to Jerusalem, you want to see where Jesus walked and where uh, he might have been laid and all of these other things so that you can make a connection to Jesus, wonderful, wonderful. There are people out there that like idolize and have this weird uh, relationship with Jerusalem. I don't understand it. And here's the single reason why. It's because our worship is no longer there in that town. In 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. Jesus predicted it. He knew that it would happen. That is no longer the place for worship. Worship now happens in the security of the city that is built up by Jesus in living stones. The city of God is made of living stones. Do you know that? Who are the living stones? They're you. Our worship does not reside in some foreign place, in some foreign city. It resides in the people of God, the Israel of God, God's chosen people. You are the city that is being built up for worship. Man, let our hearts be glad. Let us feel the security of that kind of city. At City Church, let us be that kind of city. And finally, we need to be praying for blessings of peace. We need to be praying for blessings of peace. In this world, in the Middle East, yes, of course, I hope that you do. For the good of Fort Worth, good, great. But for us, we need to be praying for peace to come once and for all. You see uh, here in this passage, in Psalm 122, it says, pray for peace. In the very end of the Bible, we have John praying a prayer of inevitable, totally glorious, all-encompassing, enrapturing, eternal peace. And this morning, I want for us to pray it together. John's final words as a part of this book, this canonized book of God's word is, come, Lord Jesus. Bring the peace. Let us pray for that this morning. God and Father, you are great and glorious and our glad hearts are here to worship you. Father, I pray that you would help us this morning together that we would find security as a city, as the built up city of God, living stones in the walls and the towers and the gates. God and Father, I pray that you would help us feel secure. For anybody who feels insecure this morning because of what other people might think of them or because of something that's happened in their past, Lord, give them security in worship of you. And Father, finally, we pray that you would bring peace. Lord, that you would bring peace in our hearts. Lord, we cannot imagine peace in this world if it does not start here first. Father, I pray for peace in the city church. I pray for peace in our families. I pray for peace in our communities. I pray for peace in the city of Fort Worth, in the state of Texas, in the nation, 
that we stand in and in the world, Lord, that you are remaking and revealing your kingdom in. Father God, we pray that you would bring peace in the person of Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Father, we pray this in the power of the Spirit and in his mighty name. Amen.